0: Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about the changing of the retail guard. And to help me discuss this topic is Ed Cleveland. Ed is the founder of Valence, a marketing infrastructure consultancy and also our partner. Ed, welcome to the show.
1: Well, hello. How are you?
0: (laughs) It's great to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into retail?
1: Of course. So I got my start in the business at a a big ad agency, sort of the home of uh, product goods, Leo Burnett in Chicago, Um, and uh, had that uh, uh, on the creative side. Uh, Then moved to Denver and started my own ad agency. But in 2011, I could really feel that the relationship sort of between uh, advertising agencies and brands were starting to change. Uh, I sold my agency and moved out to uh, New York to work with L'Oreal and help them establish their uh, direct consumer business. Um, since then, I've worked with uh, both in B2B and B2C, combining tech and marketing data for companies as varied as Mary Kay, New York Life, and News Corp. And as you said, most recently, we started this uh, consultancy called Valence Marketing Infrastructure.
0: Well, that's a huge background. That's a lot of accomplishment in a short period of time. But tell us a little bit more about Valence and why this particular company makes sense right now.
1: Sure. We're working with businesses to help them put together the right technical infrastructure to make smart business decisions. You know, one of the things we noticed as we talked to companies, big and small, was that teams who were responsible for choosing and using marketing technology were unprepared to spec software. They, they didn't have the time to devote to full requirements gathering and vetting. And they weren't even sure really how to integrate it, their new technology, whether it was into their existing technology or into their current processes. Plus, when you, when you don't look at all of your technology together, you start to perpetuate these data silos. So we help companies stay competitive by helping them choose and use the marketing technology like some of the best direct-to-consumer brands do.
0: I, I can certainly emphasize with you there about data silos. I think anyone who's ever worked with data can feel that pain. But let's dive in a little bit more to retail and, and your background with the retail guard. One of the things we were talking about a while ago that I thought was so interesting, and you alluded to a little bit in the beginning, was how retail has changed to allow for these new fast I call them fast retailers to come to be. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like in retail particularly 10 20 years ago and maybe compare that to what's happening now?
1: Of course. I can I uh, looking back it's it's good to have some uh, some perspective and some gray hairs here, right? <laughs> um, you know, the, I, I see that there are a lot of factors that ushered in this era of new retail. Uh, you know, there was a time these brands delivered trust, and they delivered trust through multi million dollar broadcast campaigns and general distribution. You know, I might say something like Tide is a great cleaning option because I see it everywhere, and, and I just saw a commercial that made me feel really good, right? But there's a brand right next to it that I've never heard of, but I've still spent premium on that Tide because they've earned my trust with these commercials. But today that trust comes more from ratings and reviews or from these like independent aggregator sites where they can tell you what's important and what's working and what's not working. So this ability to trust and buy new brands opened the door to all of this innovation. At the same time, communication channels and social media allowed every brand to tell its own story. So this is where every copywriter that I knew went out and got new business cards to call themselves brand storytellers. (laughs) But truthfully, that that, that feel-good 30-second television spot became less and less effective than an authentic vision and a real creation story shot on an iPhone that really connected with customers. Plus, now you could transact business without owning a store, distribute without owning trucks, you could manufacture without owning plants, you could buy just the infrastructure you needed, and then if you had to scale, you didn't have to pay some sort of cost penalty in order to grow. It was this perfect storm of great things that happened so that these brands had the opportunity to grow and to thrive.
0: I didn't realize it was happening across all these different areas. Well, they were
1: so used to this sort of obfuscated view of the customer. So normally they'd work with an agency who would negotiate with a publisher, who would then drive the customer to a retailer, or they would eventually find the brand. And that poor brand, they had no understanding of the customer. The best they could hope for was some anecdotal idea of what was getting them interested, what was selling, and all of it was so severely delayed, their connection was so blurry. But now with direct brands, they know exactly in real time what's relevant, what's interesting to their customers, and they're able to move their whole enterprise, again, because they're more agile, because they don't own all of this infrastructure, they can now move the brand to be exactly what their customers are looking for, and they read their signals correctly.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, It's also, when you were giving the example in the beginning about Tide and choosing a brand because you know Tide, I remember doing that. I remember specifically staying away from unknown brands that I don't necessarily feel now because there's definitely a connectedness. I can pull up the brand's website. I can see their reviews. I can see what other people think about them. I can see if my friends are buying them. And that direct connection is really driving that perfect storm. That's how have the bigger brands reacted to this change?
1: You know, yeah, there are some of them that are out there that are really doing a great job, uh, seeing, uh, understanding the data, and and using that first-party data to fuel every enterprise function. And Nike's a great example of it. You know, they they continue to sell more and more, make bigger commitment to e-commerce and, and their online presence. And so they're using this shopper data to help design their products for each of their individual segments. They get this great feedback that makes them so authentic um, so that even as a legacy brand, the personalization and the, the feedback they get from one year becomes mainstream next. And then eventually, they also are using their, their, their workouts that are uh, logged by Nike Plus mm-hmm. to really get a feel for what's going on. So they've got this great pool of data and they're using it wonderfully in order to stay relevant with, uh, you know, an ever-shifting and very fickle customer base.
0: Well, and of course, I'd be remiss not to mention the Zodiac acquisition that Nike made earlier this year, uh, which was a company that was designed to calculate customer lifetime value. So I imagine they're probably loading that into the mix of data that they have as well.
1: I can't wait to see how that changes things or how that affects their overall communication strategy. Another one that I love is is Urban Decay. Urban Decay as a beauty brand has always been very cutting edge and they're doing a great job of understanding customer sentiment on social, looking at their browsing behavior both on site and through their videos and taking all of that activity online and offline to modify their product mix and keep themselves very cutting edge. I love what they're doing. And, And again, they have to be, not just beauty, but their makeup, they are like experimental makeup. They're so cutting edge and, and they use all of their signals in, in order to deliver a product and a message that keeps them right there on that
0: edge. So they're using online data to keep the mix really sharp. They're using those customer signals, customers across the board to try to understand what is the right product to deliver to them. Is that right?
1: And That is correct.
0: Well, how does that relate to the new retailers that are coming out that are moving faster? And maybe you can give us an example or two.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk around these direct-to-consumer brands. You can't talk about them without without touching on Dollar Shave Club. Mm-hmm. You know, they put uh, about $4,500 into a video, created a whole new marketplace, and then ended up selling for a billion shaves or well, a billion dollars, right? The Gillette share at one point was 70% in 2010, 70% market share, and that fell to about just about 50% in 2016. That all came from this idea of finding just a decent product. I mean, I don't think that the Dollar Shave Club is an improved razor, it's just a decent razor. But they have great delivery and an incredible story, and they found this huge margin. Gillette was selling at such a big margin, the cost. It was such an opportunity to slide right in. It was a marketplace that was ripe for competition. So, uh, you know, they're one of the great success stories of direct to consumer. Warby is another great one. I, mean, I had a granddaddy of them all. They, they also found a marketplace or a, a vertical that was, they were making way too much money on. Uh, Luxottica mm-hmm. owned almost the whole vertical, and, you know, glasses shouldn't cost $600. So they created this great. Fashionable product, an incredible product that even like the look of Warby sort of made you look digitally savvy. I I love the fact that they sort of developed the look and made it fashionable, and then they overcame the delivery problem because people said you wouldn't buy uh, glasses without seeing them on your face. So they sent you five without any glasses in them, and you chose it and sent it back, and then uh, you know, and then they had online digital, uh, you know, see what it looked like on your face sampling also. So they found a great high margin target, they delivered it well, and they had a great story. Those are the consistencies that I've seen in the the direct-to-consumer companies that are really succeeding.
0: Those companies make a lot of sense. I can see how the role of the story is central to what's driving them. The other things support the distribution and the product uh, those things have to be good too, but it seems like they're attracting their initial audience with that great story. Uh, just like you talked about with that 4,500 video from dollar shave club, uh, m- making them uh, come out of the gate strong.
1: One of my favorite brands, uh, the one that I, I fall in love with is, is Lola. They, they ended up raising about $11.2 million in funding. Mm-hmm. And you know, they uh, they are a business for women by women as opposed to, uh, you know, feminine products that were made by and sold by men, you know. So here's another great example of like a better story, a better product with better delivery. They just nailed it.
0: What do you think this means? You know, you've got these smaller brands coming up is this something that's sustainable is this you know really a changing of the guard or are the legacy retailers just going to turn around and copy what the new brands are doing or acquire them what do you think is going to happen here
1: well this isn't a trend i think this is a, an actual change uh, jd power said a third of uh, consumers expect this direct brand connectivity And I think you need to have an authentic story. It no longer can be just a sort of made up feel good. I think you need to have some authenticity and you need to deliver value, whether it's higher quality or lower cost or even better, both quality and cost. And you need to be able to deliver that story digitally across all of your channels. So it doesn't have to be a feature film beautiful. It just needs to be authentic. And it's not just the delivery, because I'm I'm telling you, some of these brands feel like, oh, that's the difference. And so, in fact, right before we got on, I I said, I wonder what happens if I Googled Gillette and subscription. And sure enough, the top choice was, hey, yeah, we've got subscription, and you can get it for a dollar a blade. It's like, (laughs) oh, yes, they're not bowing to Dollar Shave Club now. I mean, like... (laughs) They used to run that market, and now they are just following and hoping that, hey, look, we've got delivery too. And I think they miss the idea that it's not the delivery, it's the story. They understand that the razors cost too much, and they get me, whereas there's somebody in Gillette who who I'm sure is saying, if we just make it an easier subscription model, we could sell more.
0: And I think that's a lot of what fast retailers bring to the table is we talk about it as story, we talk about it as customer experience, but it's really that authentic heart that is what drives people to the brand. They understand that glasses shouldn't cost $600, razors shouldn't be $10, and those are just cost pitches. There are other angles, um, perhaps with Lola, where the story is connecting to women who want products developed by women, not um, what did you call it, a, a level two medical device at one point? I,
1: <laughs> that was talking- it. You don't have to ever disclose what's in a feminine product because it's a level two device. And Lola said, that's silly. We're going to make it. We're going to make our, our stuff out of uh, cotton. We're going to make it and we're going to tell you what's in it uh, because it matters to the, the women who use it. And to me, that is exactly at a passion for the product. Yes. And, and it makes the consumer feel smarter, feel like they're making a better decision and not sort of aligning with these big brands just because that's what their mom or what, what their family had done forever, right? There are new generations and new folks that are making new buying decisions, and they're making decisions based upon these stories and availability and currentness of the brands,
0: and are they actually having a financial impact? And I know I can see that in Dollar Shave Club. Um, you know, they've obviously had a huge impact. Warby's had a huge impact. But are you seeing that the fast retailers are actually taking away from the old school brands across the board and other places?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, one of the great numbers is uh, is Hubble K and J. What was out with their at you? Uh, Bausch & Loam has their own subscription model, but Hubble is growing at a rate that is so much better than, than the other two. Uh, J&J sees about uh, 8%. Uh, I think Bausch & Loam was at 6 but Hubble was at 20% monthly growth. Wow. They are just blowing up, and I think that that's what you see with these digital brands.
0: So they're growing like crazy, and I, I bet there's other examples out there too.
1: Well, I've got one more that's uh, – shoe store sales were down 5%. 5%. That's sort of what retail is is seeing. But online allbirds and Jack Irwin have have gained nearly 15 points of share over the last 5 years. So it's not that people aren't wearing shoes, <laughs> they're just not buying them at the shoe stores.
0: Well, yeah, that's a really interesting case where I think the death of retail, you know, we've been hearing about that for a couple of years and it seems that it's not really the death of retail at all. It's the rise of the customer who wants to buy in a different way. I don't know. How would you phrase it? Uh,
1: That is well said. I like the, I like the rise of the customer. (laughs) You know, I think that the world of data is changing. I think that we are looking at a change in the way that we run our businesses. You know, that third party data that people used to count on to go out and prospect and to look for, those things that wild west i think is starting to close down you know you look at gdpr you look mm-hmm. at cambridge analytica uh, california privacy acts that uh, facebook backlash that's going on right now everything's signaling that the data you own the stuff that you get from the the infrastructure that you build the things that your customers share with you that's going to become more and more valuable and i'll tell you that's why we are so happy to be partnering with ambition because we see that the infrastructure, the pipes and tubes, of the communicating with your customer is going to be the way that we bring meaning to these signals that these folks are sending. Mm-hmm. And we're counting on our friends at Ambition to help make those things meaningful.
0: <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly what we try to do. And, you know, I was working on a project just uh, last night, in fact, and I was noticing in this old school company they were talking about different things about the customer but they kept using language that was all related to the product so as i looked (laughs) at that I, i realized how hard it is for older companies to stop navel gazing, to stop thinking about what they're pushing out and what they are trying to get people to do and to really be customer led. And the new retailers have a great advantage in that they're starting with that from the very beginning. They're constantly listening to the pulse of the customer and they're really trying to let the customer lead as opposed to put this next best action carrot in front of them and assume that they're all going to trot along just like you know uh, you know like like leading a horse to water right so I, I find these new retailers so inspiring to work with
1: And we believe that your customers will tell you what you need to know to have your business grow like these great D2 C brands if you just listen to what they have to say.
0: So, Ed, if people want to get in touch with you, what is a great way for them to get in touch?
1: Well, we're uh, valencemi.com. We're on LinkedIn. And you can call me on my cell phone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You really want to give out your cell phone number?
1: You could stop by my house if you'd like. Would you want to (laughs) knock on the door? We'd love to have you come by. We always have a little something on the stove. (laughs)
0: Well, <laughs> oh, there is authenticity right there. Everybody else is like, "Oh, well, you can find me on LinkedIn." And it's like, "Oh, you can come over for dinner. Come have some cookies." <laughs>
1: That's it. You just tell me your dietary restrictions. <laughs> (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Well, let me summarize a little bit of our conversation. So we talked in the beginning about old retail versus new and what particularly had changed. And I, I love the way you mentioned this perfect storm of different pieces coming together in order to make the new retailers successful. And those pieces are more than just marketing you know we oftentimes think oh it's the rise of social media everybody can see uh, or hear my story but it's more than that it's also the infrastructure and what you said was you can distribute without owning the trucks you can buy the infrastructure you need as you need it and you probably make uh, items on demand too as opposed to having warehouses and the old legacy structure that is incredibly powerful and it is what's allowing those brands to make that connection between, hey there 's a need in the market, and I can get it to the market whereas before i don 't know how many years ago, maybe twenty years ago, you really had to go through the big band distributors there There was no alternative
1: that is true, and, uh, and I think that that actually held back a lot of innovation um, because uh, you know they were thinking on a national or on a global front, and sometimes people are just thinking on a customer by customer front
0: mm-hmm. so true. And then we talked about some of the old retailers who are changing and some that haven't quite gotten the memo yet. And some of the old retailers that seem to be, and, and by old, I just mean older, not necessarily you know, 1900, um, but these retailers like Nike and Urban Decay that have been out there for a while who have figured out something has changed in the market, we're going to change too, whether that's communicating the authenticity more, whether that's using customer signals to deliver a better product, they're getting the message and really connecting deeply with the customer as opposed to, I think your example was Gillette and how they simply added a dollar a month, like the, the, The subscription model to Match Dollar Shave Club, but they were missing the heart behind it. It was clearly a Me Too strategy. And that fails because you have to connect with everyone at at the beginning. And that's exactly what you said in terms of like, what would you do and how would you implement this new retailer strategy if you were an old retailer or even if you're just a brand new brand coming out? the steps to get there are that authentic story like Warby and dollar and other brands are coming up with, and then delivering the value both in cost or quality or both, and then delivering digitally across the channels. That seems to be the one, two, three recipe, but behind all that and underpinning all that are the pipes and tubes. You said the, the way to get the data to make sense so that you really are listening to your customers. Did I capture all that?
1: Yes, without a doubt. In fact. One of the things that you reminded me of is the story about the guys that used to deliver ice to ice boxes, (laughs) right? So if you think about them, who had a better relationship with the household? They walked into the house three days a week, four days a week. How are you? How are you? I'm good. What's going on? How are you, kids? I mean, they were in the house. They should have been the people who created the refrigerator, but they weren't. They missed that whole idea. They just kept delivering ice. If they would have come in and said, you know what, Mrs. Jones, we've got a brand new idea. We're going to give you a, a plug in ice box. You'd be hearing about them. I, I don't think you could come up with a single brand of ice. It was in everybody's house in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think if you are not open to the new ways of doing business, you will be doomed to being obsolete.
0: I think I would even say if you're not open to how you can be of service to your customers and really thinking through what is it that I give them that they value, it's not the ice, it's the ability to keep food cold and the reframing (laughs) of that thinking is what is driving these newer brands to such success because we moved into a time now where Customers are more powerful. Customers have more choice. They are the heart of the business. It's not our ability to sell them a product. It's our ability to relate to them as people.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that that is the comforting factor in collecting first-party data, is trying to make sure that you are using it in order to be of service and grow your business and help your customers in trying to, uh, you know, because there, there is still a concern even about first-party data. About how people are using it, and so uh, I think that there needs to be a uh, an empathy in an understanding, and part of that social contract of taking care of your customers.
0: Excellent point, Ed. Thank you. So, as always, links to everything we discuss are at ambitiondata.com/podcast. Ed, thank you for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you, and looking forward to uh, to hearing this on the podcast.
0: Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text AMBITION DATA, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.